This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. You know, whenever we are having people over for dinner, uh, we always find ourselves asking the same question. But is that enough? Enough of what? Enough of everything. And so once we finally give up trying to plan something elaborate, uh, it never fails. We just almost always end up ordering Gumrai Thai, our favorite Thai place in Arlington Heights. Amen. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, but then we start to wonder, though, is that fancy enough? You know? And uh, but then we come to the realization that, like, we're not, trying to order, uh, we're not trying to get a Michelin star, okay? We are not a five-star dining. We are just a little mom-pa place in Arlington Heights. And so we order our favorites. Every time we get the pad thai, we get the uh, spicy bagel with uh, pork, basil with pork, and the duck fried rice. But after that, we start to wonder, like, is that enough variety? Should we get an appetizer? Should we get a side dish? Should we just get the appetizer sampler that's got a little bit of everything? And so we order, we order some crab rangoons. We get some uh, egg drop soup. And then we start to think, we got the savory covered, but is that enough sweet? Right? Should we get some dessert? And so then, you know what, we'll add on some mochi and some green tea ice cream, right? That sounds good, doesn't it? And, uh, but then we start to wonder, but is it healthy enough, right? Do we, do we have enough veggies? Do we need some salad? And uh, then we start to wonder, but is that enough food? And so, you know what, let's add on another curry. You know what, make it two curries, two different kinds of curry. But now we realize we've got like 42 servings of food for like eight people, and four of those are kids. And so should we invite more people then? And, and you get caught in this endless loop. And, I, and I've come up with a, with, a, with a scientific theory, a name for this endless loop that we get caught up in, and, and it's called the hot dog dilemma. Okay? The hot dog dilemma is, is that there are 10 hot dogs in a package, right? And there are eight hot dogs in a, uh, buns in a package. So you, you, you buy a second package of hot dog buns, so you have enough for the hot dogs. But now you've got 16 buns and 10 hot dogs, so you buy a second package, now you've got... 20 hot dogs and 16 buns, so you order another one. And I got tw- Pretty soon, you bought like an entire pig's worth of hot dogs, okay? And so pro tip, the way to get out of the hot dog dilemma endless loop, will you just go to the meat counter and buy the specialty brats? They're way better anyway, okay? Get 10 brats, 10 buns, good to go. But that's kind of how we operate, isn't it? Like we're always adding things to the list because it never feels like enough. It never sounds sufficient. And you know, so often that's exactly how we end up treating the gospel. Denying its sufficiency by asking, but is faith in Jesus enough? And I think most of us agree that like, faith in Jesus is good. It is important. It is a, a, a very necessary ingredient to the recipe, but, but it's not the only ingredient, is it? I mean, don't you need more? And, and we do that. We do that to ourselves, thinking that I've not done enough to be accepted by God. There's, there's more I need to do to make up for all I've done, and I've done a lot. There's a lot to make up for. We do it to ourselves, but we also do it to others. There's more they need to do to be accepted by us. They need to look like us. They need to line up with us. And our behaviors reveal our beliefs. They reveal that we believe that faith is not enough, denying the sufficiency of the gospel. And that's exactly what we saw last week as Paul 
confronted Peter, a Jewish Christian, for refusing to eat with Gentile Christians. And Peter's behavior that that they were not uh, Jewish enough, it revealed his belief that faith in Jesus was not enough. And so Paul, he, he told that story that, that Pastor Robin showed us last week. He, he tells that story in his letter to the churches in Galatia because they're displaying very similar behaviors that reveal very similar beliefs, that God's grace, man, it is great. Praise God for that. And faith, faith is necessary, but it's not enough. There's more you need to do. And he follows up last week's story in this morning's passage with a reflection, reflecting on the sufficiency of the gospel. And that's going to be the title of our sermon this morning, the sufficiency of the gospel. And he's going to show us its sufficiency personally for you, for me. And he's going to show its sufficiency universally for anyone. And then he's going to provide us three implications of the sufficiency of the gospel. And so if you haven't already, let's go ahead and let's take out our Bibles and let's turn in the New Testament to the book of Galatians. Um, be right after Romans and First and Second Corinthians there. We're going to be in chapter 2, that last passage in verses 15 to 21. And the first thing we're going to see this morning is, is Paul's theological reflection on the uh, sufficiency of the gospel. All right, a theological reflection. And he begins by reflecting on, on the similarities that he and Peter had, reminding them of, of what had previously united he and Peter as, as Jewish people. And he says in verse 15, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And the we here that he's referring to is himself and Peter. He's saying that they, they were united by, by three things. They're, they're united by a shared national identity, right, as the, the nation of Israel. They were united by a shared racial and ethnic identity as, as descendants of Abraham, and they shared a cultural identity as the Jewish people, right? Bearing the mark of the covenant, the mark of circumcision. And, and under the old covenant, God, he had said to his people, he called his people, he said, be holy for I am holy, right? Be, be set apart from the rest of the world in the way that you worship and in the way that you live, worshiping and living according to the Mosaic law. Set apart from the, the idolatry and the immorality of these Gentile sinners who worshiped and lived by their own pagan ways, people who did not know of or possess the Mosaic Law. It was as if God had a little secret clubhouse out there in the desert, didn't it? A little speakeasy, so to speak. And, um, and only the Jewish people knew the secret knock. No, there's an extra pause in there. See, everybody knows the other one. This was a secret knock, not a not-so-secret knock. But see, the Gentiles, they didn't have the secret knock. Not only that, they didn't even know where the speakeasy, where the clubhouse was, and not only that, they just didn't care. Y'all go have your little not-so-secret secret party. But the Jewish people, what they did is they treated the Gentiles as if they had some sort of contagious disease, culturally distancing from them. And when we look at uh, one of the Jewish writings in uh, the book of Jubilees, written some 150 years before this letter, it says, separate yourself from Gentiles. Do not eat with them. Do not perform deeds like theirs. Do not become associates of theirs because their deeds are defiled. All their ways are contaminated, despicable, and abominable. And that's exactly what Peter did at Antioch last week, wasn't it? He distanced from them. 
He was drawing back, separating himself from the Gentiles. He was just simply doing what he had been taught. But then Paul reflects on how he and Peter, as, as now Jewish Christians, as, as followers of Christ, how they were united to these Gentile Christians, these former pagans who now began following Jesus. And he begins with a reminder, reflecting on the sufficiency of the gospel itself. And he says in verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It's an important reminder, and I think there's three important words in this reminder that we need to make sure we understand if we're to understand the sufficiency of the gospel. Justified, works, and faith. And now justified, uh, let's move into the courtroom. Justified is a forensic. It is a uh, legal term. It is to be declared righteous, to be declared in the right, no longer condemned. It would be a, a verdict that a judge would hand down to a defendant standing trial in a courtroom. Only this defendant, they, um, they're guilty. They did it. They did the crime. And uh, there's no shortage of evidence. They got DNA. They got fingerprints. They've got uh, reliable eyewitnesses. They've got surveillance video. They even got a confession out of them, okay? There's really, there's not even any need for a jury. They don't need to deliberate. Uh, he is more than guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And yet, in spite of this overwhelming evidence, the judge from his bench, he looks down and he declares the defendant innocent of the crimes that he's been charged with. But what's important to remember here is that the, the substance has not changed. What they did did not change. They did it. It's their status that changed. They were declared to be righteous. Not made righteous, declared to be righteous. And that most definitely changed. They are now justified. And so Paul, he, he knew, he said, he knew that in spite of the, the mountain of evidence against he and Peter, right, the, the, the followers of Jesus like Stephen that Paul was responsible for not just imprisoning but executing, the, the, the number of times Peter failed Jesus, that he denied Jesus, that in spite of all of that, he knew they were both justified. He knew they were both accepted by God and declared righteous. But how? How could that be? God God can't just look away from sin, right? God's not like Elsa. He's not just going to let it go. Okay. God's not like Elsa in a lot of ways. But definitely that one. God's not going to pretend it never happened. God doesn't hand out mulligans. God doesn't hand out get-out-of-jail-free cards. No. What Paul knew is that their sin had dug this chasm that had separated them from God. And so the question is, how would, they, how would they get back to God? How would they cross that chasm? How would they be justified? Well, now if we look at what the Jewish people actually believed at this time, they, they believed that they were born right with God. Right? They were born right with God as descendants of Abraham. This was a privileged status they were given by birth. However, it was a status that they needed to maintain in order to remain right with God. And they did this through obedience to the Mosaic law. And so what some in the churches in Galatia were teaching and what those in the circumcision party that visited Peter and Antioch uh, believed was that the Jewish Christians still needed to retain these Jewish distinctives in order to remain right with God, making it, in effect, Jesus 
and other things. Jesus and adhering to the Mosaic law, right? Bearing the mark of the covenant. Jesus and abiding by Jewish culture, right? Observing the food laws, as we saw last week. Celebrating the holy days. But it wasn't just true for Jewish Christians. It was also true for the Gentile Christians as well. Making it faith in Jesus and. And Paul's reflection on the sufficiency of the gospel, it is a reminder. It is a reminder to Peter it is a reminder to the church that's in Galatia. It's a reminder to everyone, including us here today, some 2,000 years later, that we are not made right, nor do we remain right with God by anything that we have done. Right? We are not declared righteous by the work of our own hands, but instead justified through faith in Jesus. Right? Belief in who he is and trust in what he has done. One New Testament scholar says, he defines faith as this. Faith is complete trust and surrender to Jesus Christ. It is the total acceptance of all that he said, of all that he offered, and of all that he is. And what we know is that Jesus says that he is the only way to God. He is, his words are truth. He is the source of life. That is what he has said. And what he has offered is his life in place of ours, taking on our sin, dying our death on the cross. Because what he is, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Reconciling us to God. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And that means the gospel is sufficient. The faith in Christ is enough. That our faith makes us family. Nothing more, nothing less. There's nothing else to add to this. But the gospel is not only sufficient theoretically as though we're in a classroom studying theology. No, it's, it's sufficient personally. It was sufficient for, for Peter and Paul as Jewish Christians because he goes on to say in, in verse 16, he says, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. That was true for them as, as Jewish Christians, that the, the, the blood Christ shed on the cross as the Lamb of God, the ultimate Passover Lamb that he took away their sin. He, he cleansed them of their shame, of every denial, every failure, every act of violence, every sin forgiven by their faith in Christ. And their justified righteous standing before God, it was, it was not dependent on their adherence to the law. It was not dependent on their abiding by cultural norms. It was solely based on faith in Christ's perfect obedience, his perfect fulfillment of the law, his perfect work. But it was not only sufficient for them personally, it was sufficient universally. It, it, it was sufficient for the Gentiles as well, for, for all other people. And he goes on to say in verse 16, he says, because by works of the law, no one, not anyone, will be justified. And what was true for Peter and Paul as Jewish Christians was, was also true for the Gentile Christians. They were under no obligation to live like Jews, as Paul told Peter last week in verse 14. There was no need for them to look like them and to line up with them in order to be a member of God's family, of God's people. God's people were no longer holy and set apart from the world and defined by the removal of a piece of skin. Right? They were no longer defined and set apart by refraining from eating certain foods. No, they were now defined by and united by their faith in Jesus Christ in the presence of the Holy Spirit. 
And I think we're as much in need of that reminder this morning of the gospel sufficiency as Peter was, as the churches in Galatia were. Because I think without even knowing it, sometimes our behaviors reveal the very same belief that we are indeed justified by works of the law, that the gospel is insufficient, that faith in Jesus isn't enough, that there are other things we also need to do. See, sin, like I said before, sin separated us from God. It, Scripture says it made us enemies of God. We, uh, if you think financially, we accrued a debt so large we could never hope to repay it. If you think uh, geographically, it, it has carved and dug a chasm so deep and so wide we could never hope to cross it. And yet that's the very reason Jesus came, isn't it? To do what we could never do, taking on our sin, paying our debt by shedding his blood, dying our death by giving his life. Right? His cross is what bridges that chasm between us and God. But again, this isn't some theological exercise. No, this is true practically. This is true personally. The gospel is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for me. It is sufficient for our kids downstairs. I remember we began the series, uh, What Makes Us Family, by looking at five common misunderstandings of the gospel. Remember that? And uh, if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back. And, uh, and the second misunderstanding that we looked at was that we misunderstand the personal nature of the gospel, don't we? That what God did, he did because of you and he did for you. He, he sent his son to die for you because of your sin, to forgive your sin, and all of this out of his great love for you. Right, the first verse I think probably all of us learned as children or as adults is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have it etched into our minds and yet somehow I think we've thought, that's great, John three sixteen is great, but it's not quite enough. Because we're prone to deny the gospel's sufficiency, thinking it's not enough. That there's more I have to do in addition to what Jesus did. There's some sort of penance I've got to work off in order to be seen as good enough by God and by others. And by doing that, we are enslaving ourselves to the law, either a law that we have been given by others or a law that we have created ourselves. A law that says if you read more, if you pray more, if you serve more, if you give more, if you attend the right church that uses the right translation, if you say the right things, if you vote the right way, if you dress the right way, if you do more good and less bad, then, and only then, maybe you might possibly maybe be accepted. And when we buy into that law, when we buy into that mindset, we live as though we are pledging for a fraternity rather than part of a family. Like we're trying to show off and make other people proud of us in order to accept us. We give them the Instagram version of ourselves rather than the real self, don't we? Because ain't nobody accepting the real self behind those pictures. We're hoping to be accepted by God and forgetting that we've already been adopted by our Heavenly Father as His children. Adopted and chosen And we find ourselves over and over and over doing things for God rather than simply being with God and resting in his arms. If you take nothing else away this morning, hear this. There's nothing else you need to do. Amen? 
There's nothing else you need to do. It's not Jesus and it is just Jesus. Can you say that with me? It's not Jesus and it's just Jesus. One more time. It's not Jesus and it's just Jesus. One more time. It's not Jesus and it's just Jesus. And that's true no matter how far you have strayed. That's true no matter how long you've been away. And wherever you are this morning, whatever you have done, whatever you have found yourself caught up in, man, if you are worn out and you are tired, you are exhausted and frustrated, lost and alone, I need you to hear Jesus calling out to you this morning. I want you to hear him calling out to you and inviting you, saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we reject that yoke for something heavier. And we take on a heavier burden that Christ never asked us to take on. But not only is the gospel sufficient for you personally, the gospel is sufficient for anyone universally. Anyone. And I think this might be, I don't know, this might be where we struggle the most. Acknowledging that, um, that by works of the law, no one, not you, not me, not anyone, will be justified. But the thing is, is our behavior reveals what we actually believe, and it reveals often a different belief. And so Paul, part of why he's writing this letter is to correct our misunderstanding of what the gospel is and what the gospel does. Right? And we've seen already the gospel transforming us into the image of Christ and uniting unrelated strangers in such an intimate way that we refer to each other in this room as family. And the theme that we're going to see run throughout the course of this letter is that our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. Faith is that distinctive that defines us and that unites us. And what that means is that within our unity in Christ, we celebrate the beauty of our vast diversity, don't we? We celebrate that. But yet I think far too often we are threatened by diversity and treated as division, don't we? Thinking that our expression of the gospel is the exclusive expression and excluding those who might disagree with us, excluding those who might be too different from us. Right? Our behavior of expecting everyone to line up with us and look just like us reveals our belief that our way is the only way. And it declares to the world that the gospel is indeed insufficient, that faith is not enough. It is Jesus and Jesus and our way, our law, our rules, our culture. Man, this wasn't a problem just 2,000 years ago. It's a problem today, isn't it? And I think we do it without even knowing that we're doing it. Right? Our behavior reveals that a person is, in fact, justified by works of the law, just a different law, right? A law that we've written that supersedes God's. Uh, they're justified by, by living our way, a way that supersedes the way of Jesus. And we do, this, we do this corporately as churches, right? That our way to worship is the only right way. We're the ones that got it all figured out. Come here, not that church across the street. We do it corporately, but we also do it individually, right? My way of following Jesus is the only right way. I've got it all figured out, unlike all these other people sitting around me. I don't know what they're doing, but they ain't doing it my way. So they're clearly wrong. I don't even know if they're saved. And you know that arrogance that 
self-righteousness, all it does is push people further and further away from Jesus, doesn't it? Rather than pointing them to Jesus, rather than loving them like Jesus. It's because our behavior reveals our belief that we've actually denied the sufficiency of the gospel, making it Jesus and. But man, the gospel is sufficient, period, end of statement. That's what Paul's saying here. It was sufficient for Peter and Paul. Man, they were jacked up, weren't they? But here's the good news. If you're here today and you've killed people, man, there's hope. If you're here like Peter and you have denied Jesus, you, you've hidden your faith, you've stumbled, you've fallen, Jesus asked you to take a step on what felt like water and you just went right through it and sank, man, there's hope there too, isn't there? The gospel is sufficient for Peter and Paul. It was sufficient for Jews and Gentiles. It's sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me. It's sufficient for anyone. And he follows up this reflection on the gospel with three implications on the sufficiency of the gospel. He's like, I just want to make sure you really understand what this means. And so three implications. Here's number one. It's that the gospel is not a license to sin, but convicts us of sin. Right? The gospel is not a license to sin, but it convicts us of sin. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Uh-uh, certainly not. Okay, well, Paul seems pretty certain there of what he's saying. Let's just be honest that this next paragraph is really clunky, not super easy to understand, okay? So here's the deal. He's anticipating his critics' response here, right? Those that are thinking about Peter and Paul is basically outlaws, right? Wild, wild west, outlaws, um, and they're living outside the Mosaic law. They got spurs on their boots. I don't know if they got horses or donkeys or what they got. Kind of like, can, can we talk about the book of Boba Fett? Or if some of you not seen it, if you're going to see it? it, it's too soon. I'm not even going to go there. Anyway, there's a really cool Western scene in the second to last episode. It's like Kate Bain. That's Peter and Paul out there, just without the blue skin. But they're out there. They're living like Gentiles. Leave an all sense of morality behind. It's like the wild, wild west. Only in the Middle East. And they're thinking, like, if these guys, if they're justified, if they're declared righteous by God's free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? Paul, you said it, not me. Um, and not by works of the law, not by your own righteousness, then, then here's the question. Does it really matter what we do or how we live? Can I just keep on going sinning if, if there's grace, if I'm going to be forgiven? Whoops, did it again. That was a song, wasn't it? When's the last time you heard Britney Spears spontaneously quoted in a sermon? And like, it, here's the other part. If, if this is actually because of Jesus, right, you, it sounds like he is a promoter of sin, doesn't it? He's a servant of sin, like he's okay with the sin, right? He's kind of like an accessory in our crimes against God. That's, that's, that's the critique he's anticipating. And so he's like, let's think about it for a second. Anybody here, show of hands. I love the show of hands part. I know you guys don't. I do. Show of hands. Who here has met a perfect, sinless Christian? Trick question. I was really hoping you didn't raise your hand. You did? No. No, anybody. It's the guy we had read scripture today, too. No, there ain't nobody. There's no one pure in every thought, every word, every action. No one here is the perfect embodiment of love. 
And, but, but think about it for a moment. Think about, think about the most faithful followers of Jesus you have ever known, known of, or met. Like picture that, picture that individual in your mind. And then I want you to think about the humility and the maturity that actually led them to share their shortcomings, right? To be open about the ways that they have fallen, open about the ways that they failed. You know, I think that's what I love so much about Eugene Peterson's biography, a book by the name of Burning in My Bones that I read last spring, is, is, is how in tune he was as a pastor with his own sin, right? Things like uh, his, he was in tune with his struggle with alcohol, he loved him some bourbon. He was in tune with his shortcomings as a father. And, and he asked even of this very verse in, his, uh, in, his, in the message, he asked, have some of you noticed that we're not yet perfect? Y'all notice that? Not yet perfect, are we? He goes, no great surprise, huh? Like, look in the mirror. We are jacked up. We do not measure up. We've got a lot more in common with Peter and Paul than I think we realize. But what he's saying here is that the gospel is not a license to sin. No, the gospel, it leads to conviction of sin. It brings an awareness of sin and an, and an acknowledgement of sin. But at the same time, it's not some mere intellectual exercise that ends in confession. Whoops, I did it again. No, it, the gospel, it, it leads, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it leads to remorse, right? Grieving our sin which leads to repentance, turning from our sin and returning back to God, doesn't it? It leads to growth. It leads to us growing to be more and more like Jesus. The gospel is not a license to sin, but it convicts us of sin. And the second thing he's going to show us here is that the gospel tears down the walls we build that divide us. The gospel tears down the walls we build that divide us. Look at verse 18. He says, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I don't know if you noticed this, but 20th century Chicagoland architecture loved them some walls, didn't they? Uh, the more walls, the better. I, I honestly think that contractors were probably paid by the square footage of walls that they could build in a house. The more walls, the more rooms they could divide, the better. And they, they, they would divide, like, the kitchen, the dining room, the living room, but that part of the living room, this room, and, then, and just for fun, we're going to put in a half wall, because what does that do? I don't know. But 21st century architecture, residential architecture, realized, you know what, those walls are silly, because all those walls do is divide. And those walls, I don't know if you know, they make for a really awful Super Bowl party. Okay, here's what I mean. So you're in somebody's uh, home this evening watching the Super Bowl, and you're, you're, in, you're in the living room where the TV is, and you're like, I'm hungry. I heard they made some queso, so I'm going to go get some queso. Well, so what do you got to do? You got to walk through this door and that door and through a hallway that doesn't do anything, and, and you get to the kitchen, right? You get to the kitchen, and there's the crock pot. There's the queso. And you're like, I may not see this queso again for another half hour, so I better get a lot Okay, and you get a lot of chips. And, but while you're doing all this, you hear people screaming because you just missed a touchdown. Okay, you missed a touchdown. But uh, so then you get it and you're like, okay, I got to go and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my way through another hallway, another door into the dining room so I can eat my queso. And uh, you hear people laughing now. You just missed a commercial and it's going to be the commercial. Everybody's talking about Monday morning, but you missed it. 
That's what happens when we, develop, when we build walls. But here's the thing. Once you experience a Super Bowl party at someone's home that tore down those walls, you will never think of ever going to a Super Bowl party with walls again. You will never rebuild a wall you tore down. And yet that's exactly what Peter did in Antioch, isn't it? That's exactly what Paul says he did. He rejected his freedom in Christ and returned to the law that enslaved him. And if we reject Christ's perfect, imputed righteousness, that he has gifted us by his grace, if we reject that, we return to securing our own righteousness. It's not both and, it's either or. And when we do that, we reject the unity that we share in Christ and rebuild those walls that divide us. Walls that divide us as Jew, Gentile, as men and women, as black and white, racial walls, ethnic walls, cultural walls, denominational walls, just simply preferential walls. You got pews, we got chairs. You got a guitar, we got an organ. Build those walls. And we protect those walls violently, don't we? Violence with our words, with our thoughts, even with our actions. Building walls that Christ tore down. That afternoon when he was on the cross, the, the wall fractured. The, the curtain was torn. It was over. And what we're doing is we are rejecting the beauty of this diversity and we are requiring uniformity. Look like us. Line up with us. Do it our way. And here's the thing. Every rule and every requirement that we add is another brick in the wall that we rebuild that Jesus tore down. United, we stand in God's grace by faith. Divided, we fall in our own pride and arrogance and self-righteousness. The gospel tears down the walls we build that divide us. Come, tear down the walls we build up. That's why we sang that song, because that's what we do. And number three, the gospel leads us to die to self and live in Christ. All right, the gospel leads us to die to self and live in Christ. Let's look at these last three verses. It says in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I did not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The gospel is no longer good news then. I think we've learned a lot more about conspiracy theories over the last couple of years than we probably knew before. Um, it used to be kind of fun with the, you know, the grassy knoll, Bermuda Triangle, those kind of things. It got real serious the last couple of years. But they're powerful, aren't they? They're hypnotizing. It's like a tractor beam, or like the Millennium Falcon getting sucked into the Death Star. And uh, man, we are prone to follow that white rabbit down the hole, aren't we? Down the YouTube hole, down the Facebook hole, down the whatever hole. And, uh, and we follow it so far until we've become so lost, man, we can't even find our way back out, can we? We follow it so far until we are so, uh, so ashamed. We're afraid to come out. Like, oh my gosh, all those things that I said and posted over these last two years, now how do I, how do I walk all that back? And you know, um, I think we've all been duped into the um, ultimate conspiracy theory. We were duped into the ultimate conspiracy theory 
theory that says that we're capable of making ourselves right with God on our own. That we can do this. It's a, it's a theory that says if I do enough, I will be enough. And so one day we wake up realizing just how impossible this thing is. How tired and frustrated we are. And Paul, he, he, he woke up on the road to Damascus, didn't he? When Jesus revealed himself, revealing the truth of the gospel. And what Paul realized in that moment when his eyes were open is that the law was not the source of life Jesus is. And it was only obtained by faith in Jesus and the perfect work of his cross, not the work of our hands. And while I think we know this to be true, we are prone to forget this, aren't we? Our behaviors reveal a different belief. And when we forget, what Paul says here is we, we nullify God's grace. We just, we put a line through it like it never happened. Rejecting Christ's righteousness as our own, returning to the law, hoping that it will lead to life, living as though Christ died for no purpose. What was the point? It was just another guy that died. A horrific, painful death. And so when we forget that, not if, but when we forget that, Jesus is inviting us to return to the cross, to come to the cross and be reminded that that old way of thinking, that if I do enough, I will be enough, and that old way of living, that the law, my law, will lead to life. We are reminded at the cross that that old way of thinking, that old way of living has died. It has been crucified in some sense with Christ on the cross some 2,000 years ago in the ultimate act of love as Peter would one day, some years later, say he bore our sins on his body on the tree. And he did that so that we might die to sin and that we might live to righteousness, his imputed righteousness. Peter got it eventually. But he needed that reminder, and we need that reminder, that this is only possible by his death, and by his love do we have life. And so I want to ask the opening question again, is faith in Jesus enough? Of course it is. The gospel is sufficient. It is sufficient for you, it is sufficient for me, it is sufficient for our kids downstairs, it's sufficient for you at home, it's sufficient for anyone. And that faith, it, it is a living faith, James says. It is a faith that leads us to love. He's going to go on and show us in this letter, loving God, loving others, loving all others. And any attempt to add to it only builds walls that divide what Christ has united. Denying the sufficiency of the gospel, nullifying the grace of God, rejecting Christ's love. Behaving as though we actually believe that Christ's death was pointless and that it served no purpose. And so I want to close our time in God's word this morning by asking you two questions. I encourage you, write them down, reflect on them. I'm going to give you a moment to, to pray silently and reflect. But here's these two questions I want to ask. Number one. What walls are you building that are keeping you from living by faith? What walls are you building in your life that are keeping you from living by faith and complete trust and surrender to Jesus? Right, faithfully following the way of Jesus and total acceptance of, of all that he said through his words, all that he offered through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and all that he is as our Savior, as our Lord and our King. What walls are keeping you from living by faith? And the second question, what walls are you building that divide what Christ has united? 
What walls are you building in your life, in your community, in your workplace, in your home, in your family, with your friends, anywhere that might be dividing what Christ has united by faith? How might you be pushing people away from Jesus rather than pointing people to Jesus, loving like Jesus? I think we all have answers to both of those questions. But here's the thing. Let's let's not be those hypocrites the world believes us to be. And can we be honest, most times rightly believes us to be. We as the big C church, we've given them more than ample evidence. Let's be people that live by faith. Knowing that faith in Jesus is enough. It is enough for you and it is enough for anyone. Faith in Jesus, it unites us with God as his adopted children. And faith in Jesus unites us with each other as family. Our faith in Jesus Christ makes us family. And that faith leads us to love. In a moment, we are going to remember and we are going to celebrate that ultimate act of love on the cross through communion. But before we do, I don't want to rush past these questions. When something's important, we set aside time for that, don't we? We set aside time for prayer requests. We're going to set aside time for reflection right now. And so I'm going to give you the next minute or so to reflect on these questions. My prayer as you reflect is that the Spirit would stir in your heart, revealing maybe not a wall, but a brick you've laid. So that we can acknowledge, so that we are aware And so that as we begin our service, we can say once again, come and tear down the walls that we built up. And so let's spend the next minute reflecting. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.